you'd open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want to just read verse 11 and 12. This passage of Scripture that I had Pastor Larry read, basically the very center of this message is found in verses 11 and 12 where he tells us to flee certain things and to pursue other things. Pastor Larry read about how we should be not disrespectful of our masters, how we should not teach different doctrine, how we should not be puffed up with conceit, how we shouldn't have an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. He talked about those who love money, and the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And then we come to our passage, and it's the, you might say, it's the pivot of this entire chapter. And if it's the pivot for you, and if you'll go right to the very center of the pivot, you'll find these words in verse 11, O man of God, O woman of God, O child of God, O teenager of God, whatever you are today, put your name there with God and notice, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things I just mentioned. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I want to say about this message that if You never heard another message this year or another one the end of the year. And you just worked on this one message. It could change your entire life for Jesus Christ. This is in many ways a pivot for much of scripture. Oh man, oh woman of God. And I want to address one woman of God before I pray. Janelle, it is so good to see you. Oh, it's a blessing to have you here. And Eric, oh man of God, oh woman of God, we've been praying for you. Praying, and we're going to continue to pray. And as we sang those, where, where if you take me home to you or if you spare me, I am yours, O oh Lord. You have modeled that in your life. You've modeled it. And we're going to talk about what a woman of God is, what a man of God is. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Precious Heavenly Father, teach us, teach us, teach us, Lord, for every person that's here, let there become a hunger to be a person of God a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a teenager, whatever we are, make us people of yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Last fall, my wife and I, Jenny, we joined her two brothers and their wives, and the six of us toured Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont. We traveled what was known as the famous, still known as the famous scenic Highway 100 in Vermont. Route 100 is the scenic route that has been called the most beautiful road in New England. I might add, probably the most beautiful road in America. They call it Main Street, Vermont. And in autumn, when the landscape comes alive with colors, it becomes a platform as you drive along for a magical journey. And you see people pulled off the road by the hundreds, taking a picture of this hillside or that hillside because it's yellows and golds and oranges and reds and lavenders and browns. It's all mixed together and it's just blazing with glory. I've never seen anything like it. And on that route, we came across a little place called Plymouth, Vermont. It is the home of Calvin Coolidge, and we went to the Calvin Coolidge farm, the Calvin Coolidge homestead, the childhood home of our 30th president of the United States of America, where he took his presidential oath of office right at his homestead, right upstairs over top of the post office of the little place called Plymouth Notch. It's just a little hill, and in that little hill close to Plymouth, Plymouth Notch is where the president is from. Now there was a rich man, a very rich man that held a dinner party before Calvin Coolidge ever was even thinking about running for office. But people were thinking he might make a good president. And so he was invited to this dinner party. And the businessman remarked after Calvin Coolidge left, he wanted to talk to all the people and he told Calvin, I'd like for you to come and have to leave, and then I'll talk about you and see if we can begin a grassroots nurturing of a presidency, which Calvin Coolidge wasn't sure he wanted. But anyway, he said, don't you think that Calvin Coolidge would make a good president of the United States? And people began to speak up there at Plymouth Notch, and some of them said, I think he might. Others of them highly disagreed. They said he doesn't have the personality for it. He, does, he doesn't have the charisma for it. He's a quiet man of God. That's all he is. He's just a godly, quiet man. How can he be our president? And there was a lull in the speaking, and a little six-year-old girl, the businessman's daughter that was there, she lifted up her little finger that had a bandage around it. And she said, I like him. He was the only one at the party who asked me about my hurt finger. And the businessman said, and that's why I've invited you all here. That's the kind of man he is, and that's the kind of man I want for the president of the United States, which he became. I want you to know that for many years before, before he was ever a president, he was known as a quiet man of God. Now, he was a member of the Reformed Congregationalist Church in Plymouth Notch. 
whether he was a born-again Christian or not. Some people say it's funny how people go back and rewrite history and tell us about a man. I believe he was. But I want you to know, as a quiet man of God, he had a higher title than any title, such as even United States President. If you are a man of God, or a woman of God, or a child of God, you have the highest title any of us could ever want to have. That's what I want to preach about today. God's placed it on my heart. That's what I yearn for every single one of you. We read in these two verses, but as for you, man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you're called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now you probably think, well, Timothy, you're a man of God. How many other people in the New Testament are called men of God? Zero. There's no other person in all of the New Testament that is called a man of God than this student of the Apostle Paul. Even the Apostle Paul, Peter, they're not called a man of God. Now you say, well, is anyone else called that in Scripture? Oh yeah, the Old Testament. There's a lot of people. Let me give you 12, and some of them you know, some of them you probably won't know. First of all, there's Moses, the man of God. And then there's the angel of the Lord who appeared to Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson. The angel is called the man of God. Then thirdly, there's the man who rebuked the priest Eli for not disciplining his sons, Some think it was Samuel's father, Elkanah. Number four, there is Samuel himself. Then number five, there's David. Then number six, you might not know him, Shemaiah. And then number seven, the man from Judah who cried out against King Jeroboam of Israel, the man of God. And then number eight, Elijah. Number nine, the man who told Ahab Israel would defeat the Arameans. And then Elisha, numerous times, number 10. And then Hanan, number 11, the son of Igdaliah. And then number 12, the man of God who warned King Amaziah of Judah not to go to war. And many say that is the prophet Amos. Add to Timothy, and you got a baker's dozen. Those people are called men of God. And if it were only that that I have in Scripture then I would say, oh, it sure be nice to be a man of God. But if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I want to show you why it's a verse for you and it's a title you can have of man of God or woman of God or child of God. Most of you have memorized it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the, this is a generic, this is not speaking just to Timothy, though it's written to Timothy, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That verse means, Owen Brasington, you not only can be, but you are. A man of God. 
Preston, you are a man of God. Dana, you're a woman of God. Rosa, you're a woman of God. Heather, you're a woman of God. Eric, you're a man of God. Mike, you're a man of God. I could call all of your names. If you know Jesus and you believe all scripture is inspired and you believe it's profitable for you and you're living by it, then you are the man or the woman of God. Now, I've meditated on this a lot this week. And as I've meditated on it, it seems to me that there is, in this title, a deep river. There's a deep river of meaning. It reminds me of something I've only done once, and I'll probably never do again, but I decided once when I was out hunting white-tailed deer to walk across the Wind River. And I looked for a for a, uh, not a narrow, but I looked for a wide place where it looked like I could cross, and I made it across one foot at a time, because I can't swim. I didn't get my whitetail, but I did get across and back across the Wind River. There's an African proverb that says, no one tests the depth of the river with both feet at once, and that's a good proverb. You don't go, I'm going to jump in. You just might go under. I chose that crossing wisely. The river of the word of God here in the man of God is very, very deep. Reminds me of an old spiritual. Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, I want to cross over into campground. I want you to cross over into campground today and understand that God has ordained for you to be a person with his title, a man or woman or child of God. It's not about your giftedness. It's not about your busyness for God. It's not about what you do primarily. It's about who you are. It's about your character. I remember as a boy memorizing 2 Peter 1.21, and this title, the man of God, is talked about in the plural one time in the New Testament. It says, for the prophecy or the scriptures came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, here is where most people in America, when I talk to them about this, they are like a man going out to sighting his gun. And they point the rifle to the ground and pull the trigger. That's not how you get your game. You know what they do? They file a disclaimer and they say, I'm no Moses, I'm no Samuel, I'm no David. No, you're not. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the protege of the Apostle Paul. I'm not the angel of the Lord that appeared to Mrs. Manoah. No, but you're you. And if you know Jesus, you are a man or a woman or a child of God. 
Quit pointing your sights down and on purpose falling short of the glory of God. Set your sights on that as a target. Put it on your refrigerator. I am being and becoming a man or a woman or a child of God. For over 20 years, the U.S. Army, you know about this, had a slogan. Be all, say it, be all that you can be. Be all that you can be. I guess that's just for people in the army. How about people that are in the army of the Lord? Can't we be all that we can be? If you want to be all that you can be, then today I want you to get that rifle and point it. Point, aim, aim for the prize. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I will be a man of God. I will be a woman of God. I will be a child of God. And so I want us to look at three character marks of a man or a woman of God. As I look at them with you, I want you to say in your own life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a man of God. I can be, and I am, and I will become more and more a man, a woman, or a child of God. Number one, a man or a woman of God is marked indelibly, you may say faintly, but indelibly and visibly in the process of our new birth in Christ. The moment we are truly born again, some things happen. And I want you to write down verses here if you're taking notes, because here's a number of verses that show your indelible, maybe faint, but yet visible mark that came to you when you were born again. First of all, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So we have been spiritually baptized into being men, women, and children of God. When we're converted, truly washed in Jesus' blood, we are in essence a credentials collection, 100% God's child, 100% God's children. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were marked, sealed, for the day of redemption. God has specially marked all true believers. If you are truly his, you are sealed until the day of redemption. You're marked. I want you to know Satan is a copycat, and that's why someday soon he plans to mark every unbeliever with the mark of the beast. You and I are not those who have the mark of the beast. We have the mark of the Lamb. We are blood-washed. We are spirit-baptized. We are sealed. 2 Corinthians 3, 1-3 adds, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of commendations and recommendations to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. We are living letters. Living letters. 
and you show that you're a letter from Christ. Are you a letter from Christ? Yes, you are. Delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. God has marked us. We're sealed. We're spirit baptized. We're written on our hearts. Second Corinthians says we have an aura about us. There's something about us. You can look at us, you can watch us, and you can see we've been with Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled faces, no mask, nothing over our face. You can look at our face, look at our eyes and nose and mouth. With unveiled face we behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is something about the glow on our face. Now, I didn't say it's shining. I got the idea when I was a kid that if you really love Jesus, your forehead shone. And then I realized that sometimes that can be Brill Cream or something else that people use on their head. But let me tell you, there's something. There's something about a face. You can't be around Kathy Shaw very long or Jill Green. You can't be around Franca O'Carrick without something different. Something different about them. What is it? It's the glory of God. Paul further testifies in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us and he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's a guarantee, beloved. God's seal, his watermark, his precious blood mark is on our souls in our spirits. It's his pledge. In the very fabric of every true believer, we are marked ones. We're marked out ones. Paul adds in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 1.14, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want to show you something. You see this? This is a letterhead. And this is how you and I are marked. You can't just tell we're going through Smith's or we're going through Walmart or Albertson's or wherever we're going. You may not just tell right away. But if you'll hold us up to the light, there's a watermark. There's a blood mark. There's a Jesus mark. There's a Lamb of God mark. And I look at this. And it says, Intermountain West District, it's got mountains with white caps of the Evangelical Fellowship of Free Churches. And then I hold it up to the light, and I see the dome and the steeple of a church with a cross on it. And it says, Howard Lennon. Well, if you don't think it's true, Noah, would you come up and get this and pass it, let people pass it around? Please give it back to me. I'll need it for the second service. But... You can just pass it around, hold it up to the light. I don't want any of you to think I'm just telling you this. Pass it through your row and then let it go around the church. There's a watermark. There's a watermark. And you and I have been watermarked. We have been washed in the blood. We've been spiritually baptized. We have the mark of the Lord on us. And that's why in Acts 4.13 we read, 
Now as the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized it. They could see the light of the Lord. They'd been with Jesus. That's why you ever felt like, I feel like I'm being hated. I feel like people hate me. Why is that? Jesus said they would. He said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This distinct blood mark or water mark of the believer is angrifying to the world. They don't want it. And they don't want you to have it. They want to kill us as they crucified Jesus. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 17 about the physical marks that persecution and martyrdom can add to our life, to the outer body. He says there in Galatians 6, 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body. How many times had he been scourged? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Beloved, a man or a woman of God lets his or her Jesus marks show. Let your Jesus marks show. Paul told the Philippian church, don't, don't be like the world. Don't let your worldly marks show. Don't let your old man show. It says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, harmless children of God, men or women in, of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted, perverted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let your watermark show. Let it show for Jesus. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. A peculiar people. A people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, accept the guff. Never try to hide the mark. Your mark is the mark that the world says makes you a fool. But you're a fool, Paul says, for Christ's sake. Number one, a man or woman is marked indelibly, faintly, yes, but visibly in the process of the new birth. Anyone that stays around you very long knows you don't talk like they talk. You don't act like they act. You're not what they are. You've been marked. Number two, a man or woman of God is marked as a learner, a student, a lover of the scriptures and equipped for every good work. If you'll turn to 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, listen to this. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred teachings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Every true believer is a man or woman of the book of books, the Bible. No man or woman will ever mature or ever be seen as a man or woman of God until that person spends time living in the Word, living by the Word, memorizing the Word, studying the Word, teaching the Word, reproving, correcting, training in the Word, becoming fully equipped in the Word. James 1, 21 to 25 says it this way, Therefore put away... Flee from these things, filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Even in Isaiah 66, 2, it testifies, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. He trembles at my word. For the man or woman of God, the word of God is the last word. I know the word says this, but I think that's not a man of God. That's not a woman of God. I hear that all the time. I know the word of God says this, but that's not a man or woman of God. The word of God is the last word. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. When we're daily in the word of God, even the promptings of the Holy Spirit, we check out with the word of God to make sure they match the word because no man or woman of God will listen to the voice of a stranger. That's what Jesus says in John 10. We won't listen to a stranger's voice. Over and over in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I want to tell you, if you're a man or woman of God, you will know the word well enough that you will know two primary words. And I want to give you those two primary words. The one of them sounds like two. It's really one word. The first one is, fear not. 366 times in the scripture, those who know the word have read or will read, fear not. That's one for every day of the year plus leap year. 366 times, fear not. In the Old Testament, it is al-tirah. If you go to the New Testament, the Greek, is me phobasa, the word from which we get phobias. Now, fear not, fear not. Let me tell you a little story that may help you know the heart of not being afraid of the unknown. The unknown. We don't know what's ahead, and people live in fear of the unknown. 
But we know our future. We know where we're going. We know what the end is. We know that when we die, we're going on to glory. We know about our future. So it's not the unknown. We know about it. We're absent from the body at home with the Lord. An Arab spy, many hundreds of years ago, was captured and sentenced to death by a general in the Persian army. This general had a strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice. You may have heard this story. It's repeated by many ministers, but I want to repeat it to you. It's worth telling. At the moment of execution, as it drew near, the spy was brought to the Persian general. He was asked a question, what will it be, sir? The firing squad or the big black door? You decide. The firing squad or the big black door? The spy hesitated for a long time. It was a difficult decision. He chose the firing squad. Moments later, shots rang out, confirming his execution. The general turned to his aide that day and said, they always prefer the known way to the unknown way. And the aide said, well, what lies behind the big black door? And he said, amazingly, freedom. Freedom. When you fear not, there's freedom. There's freedom. He said, I've known only a few brave men in all my years that have ever chosen the big black door. Beloved, God says, fear not. Don't be afraid of the big, black, foreboding doors of life. Be willing to face your fears. Jump into new opportunities that draw you out of your comfort zone. God is in control. Trust him to help you overcome your fears. And he'll bring you into a new reliance on him. He's your provider for men and women of God. Our greatest fear is to be our fear of God. Trust is our defining default mode as people of God. So the first word men and women of the word have is one thing, fear not. Then the second word, you may say, well, you're preaching last week's message. No, I'm just talking about it a little bit. Remember the word we talked about last week? One word started with an R. Repentance. Repent. Repent. The Hebrew word is shub or tashuva, and the Greek word is metanoeo. I want you to know if our defining trust, not fearing, is there, it will lead to a defining moment in our life, and that is a life of repentance. The entire book of Hosea, the entire book is a scandalous book, you might say, a scandalous book of God's grace, how he tells the prophet who has Gomer, His wife, go off and become a prostitute. He says, go buy her back from the auction block and take her back and say, you will be my wife. Pay for her and bring her back as your own wife. He's picturing the spiritual adultery of his people. And then we come to the last chapter. The last chapter, Hosea 14.1. And it says, Shub, Tashuvah, O Israel. 
Return, repent, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And now listen to what it says, because this is probably one of the most important things I'll say in this message. Take with you words when you repent. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Take with you words when you confess to your brother or sister. None of us can be true men and women of God when we sin against God and we sin against each other and we fail to take words with us and repent to God and repent to each other. A man or a woman of God will repent to God vertically and horizontally with one another. I'm amazed how few times I have witnessed truly born-again believers be men and women of God who will say these words not only to God but to each other. I have sinned like David said. I have wronged you. I've been bitter against you. I've falsely accused you. I've gossiped about you. I've lied to you. I've spoken angry words of hatred against you. It appears to me that Christians think the only confession that is needed is vertical God's word is clear in James 5.16 where it says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There may be a lack of healing in your life because you're not a man or woman of God with the spiritual guts to do what God calls a man or a woman of God to do and that's just to confess your sins to a brother or sister. D.L. Moody said it this way, Unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin, and unforgiven sin is the darkest, foulest thing on this sin-cursed world. I'm going to read it again. Unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin, and unforgiven sin is the darkest, foulest thing on this sin-cursed world. If you are a man or a woman of God, you will not only confess to the Father, but you'll confess to your brother your sins, your parents, your children, your spouse whoever it may be. So what have I told you? I've told you there's an indelible mark, a seal, a mark you have. You're a learner, a student, a lover of the scriptures, equipped with fear not and repentance. In other words, the very opposite or the very other side of trust and obey is fear not and repent. That's what a believer does who's in the word. Now, last of all, a man or woman of God is marked by overwhelming awe at who our Father in heaven has made us in Christ. I don't know if most of us even know who we are in Christ. This is the heart of my message. This is why I've stalled on this verse, on these words, these four words, O man of God. Think of the marvel of these words. I've cried about it this week. We are mere men and women in our weakness in our confusion, in our blindness, in our failures. And yet we have been, by Jesus' blood, we have become associated with his majesty, his greatness, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. Think of putting those words together. Man, God. Woman, God. Child, God. That's an incredible joining together. A man of God is never to be known as a man of the world or a man of the flesh or a man of war, but as a man of God. Let me tell you an interesting thing that happened to Billy Graham quite a few years ago. 
Oprah Winfrey had just started a show and she had Billy Graham come on. And it was said that day that they had 20 million viewers. I don't know how they figured that out, but they had 20 million viewers that were watching. And she said, Mr. Graham, I want you to know, as a little child, I grew up in a poor home and we had a linoleum floor in the living room. And when you would come on, I would sit down by the black and white television and I would sit and I would put my head against your head on the black and white television. I wanted to get as close to you as I could. This is the first time I've ever seen you or been with you. Would you, man, would you mind hugging me? I'd like to embrace you once. It was a touching moment. How would he respond? He just threw his arms around her and hugged her. And then, with that courage and grace, she says, I have just one question to ask you. I don't know how short or how long your answer is, but what's the secret to your love with your wife, Ruth, to whom you've been married 55 years? It was 63 before she died, which was before he died. So you can see it's a number of years ago. And he used six words to describe his relationship with Ruth. He said, Ruth and I are happily incompatible. Let me say it again. Ruth and I are happily incompatible. What a surprise for a man of God to be honest on television and say, we got a lot of differences between us. But we are truly happy together, even though we're so incompatible. A man of God can take the things in his spouse that set them apart, that make them so different, that cause them to argue and disagree at times, and he can make those incompatible differences the occasion for thanksgiving to God, and his wife can do the same thing for her husband. A man of God has a sense of wonder before God, and wonder at God and his creation, God and his choice of the wife, God and the parents you gave me, God and the children you gave me, Oh, there ought to be awe and wonder. A man of God is marked by continual awe. It's not like the Texas man from Nacogdoches who would never go to see the Grand Canyon. His kids said, Daddy, it's beautiful. you got to go. He said, I'm not going. Bill Sherrill tells a story saying this Texas man said the mighty canyon just sounded boring to him. When he got to his 70s, they finally got him in the car and they drove him all the way up from Nacogdoches, Texas. They drove him up to the Grand Canyon. Finally, he walked up to the south rim as his children anxiously watched him. He walked up to the south rim. He stood there for a minute. He looked down at the mighty Colorado. He looked 20 miles across to the north rim. Then he looked at them and he said, I've seen it, let's go home. I've seen it, let's go home. And I talk to people about Jesus and say, yeah, I did that years ago. Yeah, yeah, I said a prayer years ago. Yeah, yeah, I know about God, I believe in him, yeah. And I say, God forbid 
God forbid. A man of God is in awe. A woman of God is in awe. A child of God is in awe of who he is. He's in awe of his creation. He's in awe of God's gifts. So I want to sing in closing words that are 115 years old, written by Charles H. Gabriel, showing the wedding of our weakness and his majesty. If you know it, you can sing along. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Beloved, be all that you can be in Christ. Be a man or a woman or a child of God with his landmark, his blood mark, his watermark, his seal on your life, with his word in your heart. Fear not, trust, and obey, repent, and be in awe of him. Pastor Larry, would you close us? Where we as men and women, sons and daughters, servants and stewards, where we are living up to that title, man of God, woman of God, and where we may be falling short. May we confess, yes, with many words, our failures to be all that we can be by the grace of God for the glory of God. Help us never to lose the wonder of it all. The wonder of who you are, the wonder that you even included us in your plan of salvation, and the wonder that awaits us when we pass from this world to the next. Thank you for such a powerful and anointed message that challenges our hearts today to draw close and live close to the cross as a man of God, a woman of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.